Here's a newsflash. I love Danny Tanaglia. I love him as a DJ. I love him as a character, as a legend, as just a hundred percent real DJ who's always been there in our lives. But more than anything, I love him as a person. He's an incredibly, incredibly sweet and sensitive and smart and kind person. And uh, the times I met him, I just felt instantly a connection. And so it was a complete pleasure to have him as a guest on this edition of Last Party on Earth. Now, Danny has been a DJ since the late 70s. There are very few people that can talk with so much authority and have so much knowledge and stayed so humble. But just there are very few DJs that can really break it down about the entire history of the craft and the scene, and Danny's one of them. We get into Paradise Garage. I will warn you right now, if you don't want to hear about Paradise Garage, just stop listening right now because the words paradise and garage come up a few times, as do the words Larry and LaVon. We talk about dancing. We talk about what makes a classic record. Danny really articulates beautifully the excitement and the magic of a nightclub, of what the whole experience is like, the semi-religious nature of it, and the magic that has fueled so many of our careers. So Danny talks with passion and love about music, his favorites, and this is a great conversation. I will apologize in advance for the sound quality on this recording. Not only does it sound a little dodgy, this was done by over Zoom, but for boring technical reasons that I can't quite explain, there's a bit less of me than I would usually like. Some of my laughter, some of my banter, some of the back and forth had to be sacrificed for the sake of a little bit better audio quality, some of the crosstalk. So um, a little bit of that has been lost. I hope you enjoy it. This is Danny Tanaglia, a phenomenal DJ, a really, really important and beautiful person on Last Party on Earth. So how you doing? I'm pretty good. I can't lie, you know, considering uh, the pandemic and all that, it's been a strange, you know, blessing, curse kind of thing, trying to make, find the goodness in it. And I've been able to take the time off that I've been desiring for so long, you know, so many years of traveling and consistently never really taking a break, never taking a proper vacation. And now with uh, me moving into this new home, I've been able to stop, you know, take a breath of fresh air and do shopping slowly for the kitchen and the flooring and not be in transit in the meantime, you know. You do everything you never had time to do. Yeah, but this is not the way I wanted to go about it. <laughs> no. So first, welcome to the show. The show is called Last Party on Earth. Originally, the idea was when we were all working, when we were all working every night, the idea of the show was completely the reverse. It was actually like, hey, if it ended and you had a break, how would you feel? You know, like, what would your last party be like? And now, basically, it's like, what would, it, what would your first party be like? So you'd been DJing basically what every weekend since when? I started at a pub in Miami. I mean, I'm sorry, in Brooklyn, New York, called the Miami Lounge. And I was just 16 years old. And that was 1976. So that's like 45 going on 46 years ago. <laughs> what gave you the idea to DJ? I had uh, displayed a gift to my family just by... Uh, portraying the passion I had for music, how they saw I was attracted to uh, at the family parties when, you know, back in those days they would gather and who was playing accordion and who was singing and guitars, organs. I remember all kinds of instruments amongst the family. 
even if they didn't play them very well, they played them by ear, they knew a couple of certain songs. And I was attracted to that. Like, so here I was, this little kid, you know, maybe five to 10, mainly. All the other kids are going around jumping in the pool or playing, you know, wiffle ball and all these things. And here I am, like, watching them play the guitars and the accordions and things. And that progressed into me wanting to try them. I wanted to try the accordion and I wanted to try all these instruments. So then around holidays and birthdays, all I ever was happy with was, you know, those little reel-to-reel tape machines or a toy keyboard or, of course, mainly a record player, I should have said first. And then I would, uh, you know, probably have those plastic Disney records. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, it was obviously musical. And also, did you like to be the entertainer? Well, that's how it became comical is because... Um, my mother's younger sister, uh, she's the one that played piano by ear. She, she played very well. She spoke, she sung amazing as well. And she lived right next door to us. And she often babysat myself and my brothers. And she, there was the piano and there's the music. And, you know, we loved her for that. You know, the kids was like, she was so vibrant with the music. So at the parties, when it came to like the music, they would ask me to play certain records. And even though I couldn't even read yet, like, you know, I wasn't really studying. I knew which songs they wanted to hear by remembering the label and what it looked like. It's like a, like a real DJ, like, like a barely literate real DJ. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Take your request. <laughs> and let's say they tell me, a uh, play she she loves you by the Beatles. I just knew it from the way it looked, you know. And there was always that joke, like it was almost like like a game testing the kids. So you could see if you could match uh, the X's and the squares, and and I was like a magnet with record players and little reel to reels and anything musical. The DJ part came when I was about. 12 when I heard an eight track tape by a DJ, Paul Casella, and I heard the music weaved perfectly. And, and I'm asking my cousin, how do they do that? Long story short, I told the story a million times is that I called the number on the eight track tape. And this guy was like, who is this? I was like, my name is Danny. My cousin's here. And he's like, put your cousin on the phone. So my cousin's saying, yeah, this kid's crazy for music. And then and I, he goes, yeah, I remember you. He goes, where are you guys? We told him where we were. He goes, yo, I'm about two miles away. Stay right there. He was so impressed and he wanted to come meet me. He came over, brought some more Atrex. Similarly, it reminded him of maybe when he was younger. And if somebody would have called, he would have called somebody. They would have wanted to meet him. Like, who is this kid calling me? And probably it would be like me like that right now, too. If uh, a young guy or girl call me, I am 12 years old and I want to be a DJ. Like, you feel like I want to meet you. Wait, recognize the hustle, too. Hustle recognizes hustle. <laughs> I like that expression. So where were you in New York, sorry, when you were growing up? I was born and uh, raised in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where all the trendiness is now in the my father was born in Williamsburg in 1929. Too bad he didn't buy a bunch of warehouses. My brother did. <laughs> I remember when I started to, in the early 90s, I'd go to those storm raves in Brooklyn. Those are my first first trips out to, when I would go to New York and yeah. first exposure to like real techno parties and stuff. And even then Brooklyn was like barely recognizable to what it is now. It was barren and rough and Well, yeah, well, let me skip to the, what's the first record that you bought with your own money? It's not completely vivid, but I can feel and sense that it was Grazing in the Grass by Hugh Mesa And this is, you know, before that phone call with Paul, this is probably more like before I was 10. Like you went to a shop or you went with your parents or? It happened to be a record shop on, on my block. And that's where my aunt used to go get the records, you know, even pop in there just to say hello to the guy. Grazing in the Grass was an instrumental, you know, he was a trumpet player. And um, there was something so festive about it. And the fact that it was just an instrumental, 
made it even more eventful, if you will. You're relying on just the musicianship and the, I think it went on to become a vocal. I think somebody wrote vocals for it as well. I think it was the band in New Birth. So then how do you get to your first show? How do you get to your first paid gig? All right, so that brings me back to the Miami Lounge in Williamsburg, which is still there, intact, but it's a restaurant. But the, the back room where the, cause you would walk in, there would be the long bar, pool table, very traditional looking. And then you walk towards the back, there was another room that I guess they used to have live performances with the bands and had a disco ball. And I guess around 1976, right before disco exploded in 77, DJ thing was starting to happen. So they decided they wanted to get a DJ in the bar. And my older brothers, you know, chaperoned me. And I had to be home by 1 a.m. This was totally illegal. But your family was supportive? (laughs) Until I wanted to drop out of high school. That's when it became like, what do you mean you want to be a DJ? Like, like Cousin Brucie, like Wolfman Jack? <laughs> so were you, were you like pretty obsessed right from the beginning? Oh, yeah. I was obsessed probably as soon as I heard Paul's tapes. I kept in touch with him. We would buy a track from him, but, you know, very cheap. We would just buy one and he'd give you like four, you know, that kind of thing. He was just friendly. So these were mixes on 8-track? Yeah. Huh. I didn't even, I I never knew that was a thing. Yeah, you could record on 8-track. I mean, I don't know much about 8-tracks. My dad had a Lincoln Continental with with an 8-track player, and I was super young. Yeah, it was before cassette. We're dating ourselves. (laughs) You know what's funny is that I'm still in touch with Paul, and this is like 40-something years later, closer to 50, to be honest. And I think the last club he ever got to play at, because he started at clubs on Long Island and Queens. And, uh, but, you know, he got married, had kids, got a job at the electric company. And DJing had to become like second nature for him because it's provide and everything changes. But I do recall him telling me that he was for a short minute playing at the limelight before he probably hung it all up. Did you ever play limelight? I did. There several times, to be honest. I actually was the last DJ. <laughs> I closed, I seal all these clubs. I don't know why they want me to just seal it. I come with a hammer and I'm a toolkit. Now, after Limelight closed, it was still the same owner, but they, they opened up as Avalon. And then when it was uh, Avalon, I think it was a New Year's Eve party. And then I you know, played a long set. And then they closed down and now it's like a little mini shopping mall. It's a bit difficult. Sometimes when you talk, you talk to people that have had really good careers and long careers and there's so many eras to choose from. And, and, but like now when you're at home and there's no parties and you haven't, you know, and you, you remember the, the dream, the, the, how beautiful it can be. When you think of a great, great, great time of all those eras and all those clubs, what's something like, like right away that comes to mind where everything was really in sync, you know, like where you felt great, crowds felt great, music felt great. I know there's no definitive answer, but, but like. No, I think there is a way. I'm, I'm surprised you wouldn't even like predict my answer is going to be the Paradise Garage. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, it changed everybody's life that was want to be DJ or not. You know, because you've experienced clubs and just when you thought you've seen and felt it all, you know, by going to the glitzy glamour ones like Studio 54 or the ones that were more like the loft, David Mancuso, just like a raw house party with balloons and not much decor at all. But then you go to the garage and it's massive. The sound is like you've never heard before because it was the first Richard Long cell system with, you know, maybe eight stacks. Like I have four, but the garage had eight and a huge room to pump them in. How old are you the first time you go? I want to say 19 or 20. 
I do wait. My membership card says 1980, 81. So yeah, you ask me what would be my first opening track from the last party ever. And it just brought me right back to the first song I heard at the Paradise Garage. The garage opened at 1 a.m., maybe later on midnight, but it was kind of like a midnight till 11 a.m., maybe noon, a 12-hour party. I was there early. So kind of like, not the house lights, but the lights were bright. You know, they had pin spots and stuff and almost all of them were on because they were still on ladders, like doing things. And, but first there's that, that ramp that you, the cars used to drive up to when it was previously a warehouse factory. So it was like trucks would park up there. Then they turned it into a nightclub, but the first level was still parking for trucks. And the entrance was, you had to walk up the ramp. And when you get to the top of the ramp, you know, the, you're facing the wall that has the um, reception where you pay. And above the reception is the huge Paradise Garage neon sign, which I have a replica of in my garage. Through the vents of the wall, where I guess the exhaust and AC kind of thing, you would hear the music coming through right to the ramp. And you're like, it immediately build up this excitement inside of you. Like, what's beyond that wall? You know, even years after you've been going, you're walking up that ramp, you hear the music, you just can't wait to get into that room. So I pay my entrance fee. I walk in and I don't remember if I put my coat and coat check, if it was winter or whatever. But as soon as you make that right turn into the main room, you're already in front of a huge stack. And I basically stopped right there and parked I'm looking at this big room, which again, the lights were on. They were still putting gels and lights and I'm absorbing and digesting this and with expectancy of what's to come because it was early and it was, you know, maybe 20, 30 people there. And the song that was playing was Peter Brown, Do You Want to Get Funky With Me? That was on TK Disco Records. And it was the first 12 inch to ever go gold, meaning it sold over 500,000 copies. It was funky, it was electronic, it was minimal. And especially the dub section, the B side was just a dub. And Larry was probably using that as like a testing warm up record because it was great for the sound um, as a test. Obviously, in hindsight, this is like the pantheon of all the house legends, the names and Larry and everything. At the time, did you know a lot about Larry Levon? You know, because I remember when I was really young and you'd go to like our version of the legendary club, Stereo or Chris Scott. Or, you know, when I was a kid, I remember those first nights that changed my life. I didn't know who the DJ was when, when I walked in, you know, it seems crazy now, but, I, you know, later on, I had all that information, but... I didn't know anything really, you know, at the beginning. Like, did you know who Larry LeVon was? Yeah, I totally did because the friends in my neighborhood who maybe heard me at the Miami Lounge or just knew I was a DJ, kids that I went to school with that knew I was a teenage DJ. You know, I used to do outdoor sets at the local swimming pool area, the public pool. We would break in, tap into the electricity pole, and it was basically an outlaw kind of thing. I did it maybe three times until the police come and shut you down. And all of my local friends, there was a good handful that knew how much I loved DJing, knew every weekend I would be at a club called Starship Discovery in Manhattan, the Inferno and the Loft. And then I would just talk about it like, Danny, you got to go to the garage. You got to go to the garage. If I counted how many times I said that, and then I finally went. And of course, everything changed from that moment. One of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you today, I mean, without getting too personal is like, you know, we've been a year without parties and DJing is like, it's like a love affair, you know? And sometimes I feel like I'm losing touch with that person I love with that, with that relationship. 
you know, obviously you tell yourself all kinds of rational stuff. And, but sometimes I even feel like I'm like, I'm in mourning a bit. Like I'm trying to forget, you know, it's almost like I'm trying to convince myself I didn't love as much as I think I loved. When you paint the picture of they're setting up the gels and there's only 20 or 30 people and there's like a warmth, like your home, you know, and that feeling is such a great feeling. And it's, it's nice to hear because it like rekindles that, 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 that thing. Did you have, when you were young, did you have a favorite DJ? Yeah, I think basically I, I can name DJs that were much better than Larry in mixing. It's just that being at the garage and that sense of, you know, massive power that came out of that system and the music that he did select, even though he wasn't the best at mixing, you have to realize back then, a lot of the songs were drummer to drummer, you know, like it was like all sync tracks, like, you know, makes it easy for us today. Plus use the Thorin's turntables, which had the wheel, one pitch control wheel. It's like a dial? Yeah. And you couldn't back cue on a, on a record. You had to keep lifting up the needle. So it was almost like a thing of luck, you know? He was great at that. But probably in the good solid five, six years I went there, most of the times records would just end and you start the next one. People don't know this. There's a lot they don't know. <laughs> I like all the things that we don't know. <laughs> you were dancing, right? Straight dancing. I was more of a wallflower just being mesmerized constantly, you know, because you have to remember now, Paradise Garage was uh, predominantly a black gay club at first, and they were only open on Saturdays. But then they started to open Fridays and you got more of a mixture. I never, I didn't go until they started opening on Fridays. You got to remember, I was only 19. So I went across that bridge until I was 18. Did you look young? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, what's funny is that my picture from my Paradise Garage card, you could already see that I was losing my hair. You know, know that picture? Uh, I got to send it to you. Yeah. So it says Paradise Garage 8081. How proud are you or were you of that at the time? Oh, yeah. And it was like better than the driver's license. <laughs> did, you, did you pay for membership? Yeah. And it uh, wasn't that much. It would have a membership. You'd have to go to the office on Thursdays only and get approved. What would lead to disapproval? Like, do you know anyone that got, that got turned down? I don't, but it would probably be today's version of Guido's. And, yeah. Like Rio Bridge and Tunnel or Rio. Yeah. yeah, I got it. I got it. Which brings me back to what I was saying about it being a predominantly black gay club. So when you go there, you're seeing like people really throwing down with their dancing and it was more of a freestyle thing. It wasn't like, because there were many other clubs where you'd see people dancing together, doing the hustle. You didn't really see that much at the garage at all. It was just people gyrating their bodies and they even had a, a, a room with lockers if you wanted to change your outfit, which people would do. They would come in and would say it's freezing in wintertime they would put their clothes in a locker. Now they'd be in shorts and tank top. That's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. A locker room. <clears throat> that's when you know. That's when you know you got it. That's a good club. Yeah. When, so when you got a locker room. <laughs> yeah. So you want to? I mean, it wasn't like a proper locker room at a gymnasium. It was a small room. It was you know, right to the. You walk in to the left was coat check. To the right was the open locker room. So. And, um, yeah, so there was that uh, intimidation <clears throat> of being this little white boy out there, you know, <laughs> dancing yeah. like, with some form of rhythm, of course. But, <laughs> you, you know, I guess I was just more comfortable bopping my head and just staring yeah. up at the booth. Larry was in the Thinking mezzanine. about the records. Yeah. <laughs> I know that look. You're like all serious, like kind of like you're like plotting, like, well, I'm going to get this one. And ooh, what it, it's like, you're, there's the guys that are just dancing. And then you're like, you're thinking about the music a little more. Yeah. I'd probably be that guy that the DJs hate. <laughs> like, 
looking like, what is this? Tell me the name. Like, is yeah. Shazam yet? <laughs> you couldn't walk up to the DJ booth because he was in the mezzanine and it was private. So that made it even more mysterious and like just looking up at that guy up there and just watching him and feeling it, you know, the crossovers and this and that. Because he had no, none of the nonsense that we have today with the filters and the flanging and the, you know, he had his crossovers. Like having been through that extreme where, where, it's, where there's such controlled access to music, and then also in the modern extreme, where basically it's the complete reverse, where almost, you know everybody has everything. Do you find one leads to actual better DJing than the other? Are we talking about like having music that no one else has? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. That's what made you feel special too. Like you know that people is going to come to your party and hear a song that they're going to fall in love with, and maybe even want to hear it twice. But when they go to other parties, they're not going to hear it because, yeah. So that made you feel special. And um, until this day, it's kind of like in our blood, you know, it's, it's like you wouldn't really want to go. I mean, this is a weird way of putting it, but, you know, hearing a band do cover versions, you know, of somebody else's song. You want to hear them play their original music. And that was the closest I get as a DJ we felt like artists, we were playing music nobody else had. And this is before edits. Although actually there was a place in Manhattan called Sunshine Sound that used to sell acetates of edits, but it was the most simplest edit. And here we were spending like $40, $60 on a plate. I, ha I still have them. I have one that's of Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. It's just the intro. <laughs> but you felt so special having that metal plate lacquered, you know, dub plate, acetate. I grew up in that era where you know, having a track that no one else had was, was so important. I was never so good about sharing records. Like I used to, I'd sticker over my records. I put markers on my records. I was, I grew up in that. It's just in our nature as artists, you know, even if you're a, a musician, you know, you have a certain guitar sound and, you know, the Gibson or whatever it might be, but you perfect it to your nature and you don't want somebody else to just easily go to a shop and buy that guitar so yeah i think the dj thing and having exclusivity if you will is a global thing it's a feeling but i mean now it's so diminished because people shazam you and you know i think that was a big honestly i do think that was a big part of my success especially during those group jet days where i would play for like the industry the went to music parties, marathon sets. I would have so much stuff that other people wanted to know. What the hell is this? Where does he get this? I mean, I even have a, a high compliment <clears throat> somewhere Francois Kavokian was uh, interviewed and he says, Danny has music nobody else has. Not that only I have it, but I discovered it. I found it. I went searching bins and then did edits to make it have that appeal, you know, cause maybe it didn't have an intro, maybe it didn't have the breakdown. In the earlier days, we used to buy two copies of everything and try to, you know, recreate the intro or break it, start with the breakdown, in the middle, go back to the top. But by the nineties, I was already in Pro Tools or Logic, work with an engineer to help me recreate it to edits. And mashups, if you will. And now I can still do that. I don't know if you watched my, um, any of my recent streams, but I started slowly giving away some stuff that I, you know, had the access to the acapella and put it over another track. And I hate that people call it, call it an edit because I know what the true meaning of an edit is having been a remixer producer since the eighties and cutting tape. 
just to connect that part. I, I miss uh, I miss big system right now. Just like that, like a big, big system filling a room. That's one thing you can't you can't get on your own, even in studio, whatever, just that feeling. You could be a guest here in New Jersey and come to my basement. I know, I saw it, that's amazing. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you just play stuff now on your own loud, just like to listen? I can, I have neighbors are very far away from me, which is why I love this place. It's probably why I got it too. It is one more thing about when you were like, you first going to the garage, just in, all, in those early years, were you very competitive? I mean, are you competitive in general with yourself? Yeah, I think it's a, a sense of never being satisfied. Um, like when you hear yourself back, if you hear something, you're like, oh, I should have did this or I should have did that. And I'm still like that this, to this day. You know, not as bad because it's not as hard when you're mixing 45s and album cuts, you know, trying to record to an 8-track or a cassette. It's either let it go or start the tape all over again. Now we're just synced up. And even my classics, I'll put them into an Ableton session so I can have a sync track to them. And then I could play them with anything, put loops on top of them. But back in those days. Yeah, so that's crazy. I didn't even think of that. Just the technical side of mixing. I mean, for me, for the first 10 years or so, I mean, that was that was my big fear. That was the stress was, was just, and then that, that doesn't exist anymore. It's not a concern, really. There's no bending the records. There's no touching. Like, I, I, I just mean that I remember that was a major thing for me. That was just like, shit, you really, that was screw everything up. Or you make a tape and little, little, I mean, that was, that was the bane of your existence. Like, fuck. It's such a simple and easy thing to just destroy a moment by accidentally hitting something. The music stops and you're in control. And, you know, earlier I wanted to, give you a comparison of other clubs versus paradise garage and i've heard myself say this before it's like you go into other clubs or playing at other clubs it was like driving a minivan you go to paradise garage it was like an 18 wheeler so when you have that much power in your hands on one knob you know it's like driving this 18 wheeler you can't let go of that steering wheel you know it's like you got so much power and control. Do you think there could ever be another Paradise Garage? No. Paradise Garage and the crowd was nothing short of an experience in a church with everybody testifying to the song and the atmosphere and the participation. You ain't getting that I mean, I'm getting goosebumps as I tell you this because I can just feel my sense of being brought back to, and I share this with the guys around here all the time. Like as soon as a, a track might start, I, I told you that for the most part, a lot of the times, especially during the end years, Larry would just not mix. He would just start the record from the very top. So when one song would end, you pretty much would get the crowd. The crowd would be applauding or stomping and hollering, depending on how much they loved that track but there was also that sing-along factor if they knew the words and it was an uplifting and you got to remember back then it was up-tempo soul slash disco post-disco and then you know in the latter years it became more an electronic way in the chicago house and marshall jefferson liz torres but in the early days it was very lolita holloway patty labelle south soul you know, West End, Tana Gardner. And what I was uh, trying to say is that when one song would end, and as soon as the next song would start, if you just heard, I'm going to think of something, let's say, Let's Go Dancing by Spark on West End Records. It's got this guitar. Boom. They'd run to the floor. I've seen people just go from taking a nap, maybe if they're mentally awake, maybe fully asleep, but I've seen people jump up because of many, many times.
And you have to remember also part of me describing it is that that it was a predominantly black club and Larry playing soulful music. And if you think about these artists from those days, whether it's Lolita Holloway, Teddy Pendergrass, D-Train, these were like church type singers. You know, they were delivering from a place of worshiping Jesus, you know, or their God. And, and some of the songs were about that too, not all of them, but even if it was like a super party song, the eruption from Love Sensation, which a lot of people don't know was written by a white man, Dan, um, Dan Hartman. You know, he did a Vertigo Relight My Fire. And then Lolita Holloway comes in at the end. I got to be strong enough to walk on, you know. He was so, he, now he was in the rock band, the Edgar Winter band. He wrote, come on and take a free ride. His life was changed when he performed at the Paradise Garage, Vertigo Relight My Fire. And that prompted him to write Love Sensation for Lolita Holloway. And then just imagine that as the anthem that it is, how everybody would sing along. And when the crescendo came, and I won't take my love, forget about it. It was just no buildup could compare. If I was to play a set right now of classics from the 70s and early 80s, it would never be the same because it isn't a classic unless that person lived it and they, they could truly participate in it with a dance, dancing to knowing the break when it comes in and song structure, especially the lyrical content of a lot of these songs because it has so much meaning to you in your life, where you were when you heard it, what it might remind you of in your life. So if I threw a classics party and I'm playing Keep On by D-Train and nobody knew it, but they're appreciating it because they know it's good. They're probably wondering where I might've been when I heard that, where it was big for me, but it's not big for them. So that's why I don't think those, you know, party like that can exist unless the people know the songs really well through and through. In your dream party, this is a hard one, but pick a peak time record. You know, I mentioned it earlier, but when I was going through the question, I, I realized, wait, I did a remix of Green Velvet Flash, and I was kind of proud of that one. You can't really can't get much more of a peak than Flash by Green Velvet, you know? You know, come on, the camera's ready, prepare to flash. Boom! What club doesn't erupt right at that very moment? If you don't, you better go home and go to sleep. <laughs> Campus ready, prepare to flash. One of my favorite things about you as a DJ is I love that you can go hard and tracky and dark and tribal is just part the other side of a coin of gospel and uplifting and, and melodic and that those things can just not only coexist, that they're all part of the same thing. And that, that hard, but with the human, those two, because I find so often they've been separated now. That's one of my favorite things about, about you as a DJ. Something that I appreciate that people appreciate about me that after all is said and done, after the residencies and everything, me beating up on myself, that somehow me loving 
music since I was a kid from the Beatles and Sinatra and Pink Floyd and what have you, all the way through to Paradise Garage and disco to techno, minimal. Somehow I made it all come together and work, but it was more post-residency, you know, so it's now it's like I get a gig here and there from, you know, Montreal to Israel, wherever I may go in the world. But now is when I wish I had the weekly residency, you know, I wish to God I had tractor 20 years ago too, because now I wouldn't have to struggle so much to make sure my mixing is as good as can be with the pitch control and the turntables. Now I could just focus, mainly focus on the deliverance of what's coming through the speaker. And uh, I was late on the tractor thing. I know some people like anti-laptop and this and that, but I love it. Do you think your DJing was better post-tractor? Yeah. I think I was able to express myself more as a DJ producer because, uh, again, I had that instilled in me very young, the study piano for a minute, study guitar for a minute, took all kinds of lessons, but I was so young that I, I didn't like the discipline. I couldn't stick to it. And then my first record came out in 1988 on Atlantic Records. I was bitten by the studio bug, did some productions, did some remixes. But my first love was always being a DJ. But then when Tractor came around, in many ways, I felt like I was back in the studio, just being able to open up four decks, make one or two of them remix decks with four faders, kicks, claps, loops, sounds, and in sync, not have to stress if it's going to work or not. What's a record that has brought you to tears? I think the one that just keeps coming to my mind is, you know, take me back to like 1982. It's probably Stand on the Word by the Jubert Singers. This was probably the era where I didn't have a job as a DJ. I was struggling. I was in my young 20s. I was going to the Paradise Garage in these clubs like a fanatic, wishing I had a job like that. You know, loving and knowing music, collecting it so insanely. And then this song was, you know, like a uplifting, melancholy kind of tune. It just made me wish I had a job like Tony and Larry and T. Scott and all these people. Because it was a sad time in our lives, too, in the early 80s when you're losing people left and right. You know, you're only 21 and you're like, what the hell is going on? This was before I moved to Miami. I didn't have a job and I didn't know what the hell I was going to do in my life. DJing's this crazy job where you, you know, you do the same job. You do the job, you know, one year you do it for 150 bucks. And then another year you for 200 bucks. And you know, but you're doing the same exact thing. And then, I mean, more or less. And then one day, I remember I used to hear of DJs getting, I'd hear some numbers thrown around and I didn't believe it. I was like, that's impossible. That's it. I was like, that is impossible. <laughs> I remember somebody told me that some guy got $900. <laughs> and I was like, no, impossible, like impossible. <laughs> I was picturing in my head, like, how do you even, like what, the guys in the back of the club with $900? No, but that's because I was getting like $75. I, I to this day, I, I like to say I play for free. I just charge for the bullshit. <laughs> I mean, I live and have to pay my bills, but the love of music, you can't put a price on it, you know, for sharing it i feel like my love even as a dj like my my appreciation how i'm evaluating records is back to kind of how i evaluated records when i was a kid it's like it's so pure it's not like oh is this gonna work on a certain dance floor it, it's really just like do i love it am i dancing whatever and i'm making i'm not even making folders but i have one folder and it's like i'm 10 years old it's just a folder of records i want to play for other people 
There's no minimal dark. There's no six to 8 a.m. No, no, no. It's like records, if I'm ever so lucky that I can play for other human beings. I love it. That's what it is. It's a, it's a folder. One of the things that to me was, I've heard all the DJs before, but even though Larry wasn't as good technically as some of the other DJs, maybe mixing harmonically and just, you know, as perfect as they can, meaning in sync with the beats and, you know, mix two records together. Larry made you feel what he was feeling. And that's what I think I learned the most from him. So it would be similar to what you're talking about, showing up with those 10 records, but knowing that the people are going to feel from you what you're feeling from them, why you chose them. That's it. It's why you chose them. It's the intention. It's like you were in love when you picked them. And that's what I think a lot of people learned about me later on in life. You're like that, though. I mean, you are like that. That that to me is probably the biggest compliment then because that's what you strive for, but you knew you weren't satisfying everybody because people had their, you know, pick me up, pick me up, make it faster, make it harder. When I see that stuff, I just think, I'm like, how do you get to be like that? Like, I can't in a million years imagine me pointing at the DJ and be like, come on. Like, like it's such a, it's such a completely. Yeah, exactly. Hey, did you ever meet Larry? Yeah, I got to meet Larry. He knew who I was through the record pool, Judy Weinstein's for the record. He was a member of that pool and a lot of the DJs from, you know, record pool would stop the garage. Everybody held the garage, but Judy Weinstein was very close to Larry. So I would see Larry every now and then at the record pool. And then when I became a member of the Paradise Garage, I also became a member for the record. I can't say I knew him that personally to really describe what he was like, but I think he was kind of closed and standoffish. Back then there was a phrase about, you know, if you can't give up a DJ or an artist or somebody that's famous in a way, music, drugs or sex, you, you're not going to get that close to them. You got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you, got, you got nothing to give. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. one of my, you know, I have a favorite story that I probably, I don't think I've ever even shared this story. There was a club in Manhattan called Crisco Disco. When it first opened was long before my time, I was, allowed to go to Manhattan or to any clubs. I probably wouldn't ever want to go to this club anyway because it was like a gay leather theme club. So Crisco was now open seven nights a week till 10 a.m. It closed in 1983. This is how far we go back now. And it was the kind of club that at 4 a.m. when every other club had to close from Studio 54, Xenon, the Mud Club, Hurrah, a mixture of straight gay clubs. It wasn't, it was no longer like this leather themed pub on 8th Avenue. Now it was a nightclub on 15th Street and 10th Avenue. Anyhow, I don't know who invited me there for the first time, but I started going. The music was great, big sound system. And then I got offered to play there, but uh, it didn't last very long because they closed. They got shut down. Um, however, I was friends with the DJ and, you know, they didn't always have a light man and I would go up and I would do the lights and I would really get into it too, because it was like playing a piano in a way, you know, and I knew the songs and I would just get into it, strobes and this old disco kind of lighting. And I'll never forget it. The DJ put on, I want to go bang, which is one of my all time favorite records. And it's got so much going on. And Larry LeVan happened to be there. Oh shit. At night and it was slow wasn't very crowded and I was in the booth doing the lights till I want to go bang and afterward when I went down I said hello to him he complimented me like he caught it okay all the changes like I remember exactly what he said he was really like you really turned me out with those lights and worked it so that was that was special great and, uh, the other <laughs> This, this you'll find humor in. If people ask me if I ever got to play at the Paradise Garage, 
The closest I ever came was Larry asked me to turn the volume down once <laughs> or up. He was doing the, I was there in the afternoon because of membership and I was friends with some of the employees and for the record, I don't know what it might have been, but Larry was doing a test of the sound system. He was on the dance floor like, you know, sometimes we shift speakers this way or that way. And he was playing Time Walk by Eddie Grant. So I happened to be up in the mezzanine in the boot. And when the record ended, he was still out there and he's asking me to lift the needle up and, you know, first lower it, bring it back up. <clears throat> so he was doing his sound check and I'm just looking at me, he's going like up louder. I'm like, here I am playing for Larry. <laughs> When did when did Paradise Garage close? 1987. When did Larry pass away? Um, it was I want to say like 94. I remember him playing coming to Miami. I had I moved to Miami in late 1985. When I was talking about the era 1982, when um, I didn't have any work, um, I got offered a job in Miami in 1985, and I stayed at that one club for five years. Then I moved back to New York in 1990. Uh, but Larry had come to Miami to play at some club at Warsaw. And, you know, of course I was there. And, you know, it couldn't translate. The Paradise Garage, you know. I remember hearing Keep It Together by Madonna. <laughs> it was good, don't get me wrong, but it just, it wasn't his playground. I think by then he was, you know, he was a party. Hey, were you a party person? No, not like he was. Maybe in my Paradise Garage days, maybe I would smoke weed a little bit, but I was I was always paranoid, kind of like already so attracted to the music and it was my high, you know? So yeah, I'm not gonna say I didn't try things when I was younger, but I never tried any of the designer things that people do today with the alphabet. <laughs> I could entertain you by telling you I tried ecstasy when I was 40 the first time in Ibiza 2001 let's hear the 2001 40 year old ecstasy story <laughs> <laughs> alright so prior to that my experience was marijuana and I, I can't lie I probably tried coke a few times but never stuck to it you know when I meant the alphabet stuff I meant like K, G, H, B, and meth, and all that guff a bit, heroin, never tried any of that. Was curious, but never did it. And then I started going to EBs in 2000, and 2001, that's, I turned 40 in March, and then the summer season came, and then I had a few dates and scheduled there with space, and wherever, and I remember, I played at Space, and then afterwards, everybody was going to go to the carry-on at Manumission. Or, no, first it's Manumission, then the party starts at Space again. I guess the only way to really have experienced that would have been to be an ecstasy, because how the hell else can you stay awake? You know? <laughs> anyway, we Space was finished with my set, whoever went on after me. My, we go back to the Ocean Drive Hotel. Now we're freshening up they gave me the pill took it went upstairs took a shower got changed go back down to the restaurant where everybody's meeting at ocean drive to go and we're sitting in the restaurant area here we I go find myself like looking up <laughs> at the ceiling and things are starting to like not hallucinating not like you know ask lsd crazy stuff but I felt something kicking in. And I don't remember what the conversation was. I remembered some of the pe people that we were with. And then I think for a moment, I felt paranoid. And I'm like, oh, 
I can't go. It started to kick in and the fear came over me that it was going to just magnify. I felt like I should go to bed and pray, <laughs> pray it away. And I'm there like, oh my God, probably blushing. And I just gave in. I got up, I said, let's go to space. <laughs> and the rest is history. I was a clown. I was like a kid, you know, like, holy shit. It was kind of like a, now I get it. Yeah. Do you remember who was DJing? Uh, I want to say Smoking Joe. I remember her and like local resident Ibiza DJs were at space. You know, I was good about it. I didn't like immediately want to do it again the next day or the next week or the next gig, you know, afterwards. Never tried it while I was playing. Well, I want to ask you a question about, so the long sets, right? I mean, you became quite known for, for long sets. Two questions, really. One, when did the long set thing begin for you? When did it start with like 12 hours and longer? Playing eight hours was always normal for me. That's a job. You work nine to five. Just with DJing, you basically work at 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. 10 to 6 in Miami. That was the set times I played at a club in Miami for five years, three nights a week, sometimes four nights a week. So it was always eight hours. That was your job. When's the first time you did a 12-hour set that you remember? Uh, probably in Miami at the Winter Music Conference. Um, that's when they started going long. Was it like a big decision or it was just like, okay, we're staying open longer. I'm playing longer. The reason we would get away with it is because it was Winter Music Conference Week and there were so many clubs open, you know, that um, the club didn't get harassed for, you know, staying open late. I remember I, I started going to Miami uh, around 94, 95. And yeah, that, that was like, I mean, it was legendary that everybody knew. I mean, it was like Danny playing late. You had to, that's where everyone had to go. Right. It, it was the true meaning of after hours. Yeah. You know, and of course people are partying and, you know, they don't want to stop. Not saying that you can't enjoy yourself without that either, but, you know, people are on vacation. You know, they, so this was their time to let loose. When you started doing the really long sets, you knew it was going to go really long. What was your ritual, like your preparation? I don't mean non-musical. I mean like footwear, naps, like clothing. Uh, I've always been horrible with taking naps. I drink coffee, I wake up, and it's just the pure adrenaline and the excitement and the nervousness that um, would get me through. So you didn't sleep before? Like you go regular night before, up all day, and then work? I pr I don't, I'm not saying that I was getting up at 7, 8 in the morning either because you're usually preparing throughout the night. So you're somewhat on a night schedule, maybe going to bed at 4. Might have even gone out to other clubs, other parties the night before to hear other DJs. For the most part, I allude to my preparing you know, many, many days or weeks leading up to the conference, I would be in sessions doing remixes or mashups or edits. The real marathons started happening like 10, 12, 14, 16 hours after GrooveJet. GrooveJet, I think the maximum was like 10 hours. That was circa 93, 94 to 2000. In 2000, Club Space opened in Miami, and I was the first DJ to play Club Space. Then only like a year later or so, they closed and reopened space up the block. So I opened space, closed space, I opened up the new space. Is that where it is now, like with the terrace and everything? Yeah. And, and there they had the 24-hour liquor license. So there really was no stop time for me. There I might have started thinking like in advance, like bring some protein bars, granola bars, bananas, you know, just have coffee for me around 8, 9 a.m. We would even provide that sometimes, like breakfast at 8, you know, breakfast at 10 on the patio, donuts, bagels, and coffee for the crowd. I got, I'm got. i good friends with the Martinez brothers, and uh, when they do their long ones in Miami, I 
you know, it's a lot of the time I'm together and I'll just show up, but I'll show up like deliberately, like so well rested and like out of the shower, like had a big <laughs> breakfast. I just emerge like the paragon of health, you know, like, hello, everyone. Like everyone's all like in full zombie ghoul mode. And I'm like, I went for a brisk walk. I always found, I mean, you probably, I wonder what you think about it. People from the outside always ask, you know, oh my God, how do you play a long set and blah, blah, blah. And I always thought that the long sets were way, in a way much easier, definitely less stressful because you just knew that you had the time to do what you wanted to do. And you also knew it's like, when I play a long set, I look out at the crowd, I'm like, okay, like we're stuck together. Like you're not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. We both know it. So like, just chill out. Just like, listen to what I'm going to play. Like there's no, a lot of that tension of holding them and keeping them and it just dissolves. And, and I always found it was really fun on a programming level, you know, just to play all those records, you know, just that you, that you normally feel you can't. And you, you wrote the book on it. Well, this is leading me to speak of Groove Jet in Miami during March, uh, went to music conference and then space, but ultimately uh, it became stereo for me in Montreal. All right. That's probably my favorite club to play in the world. Yeah, so t- yeah, actually that's, I mean, seeing as it's my hometown, tell me a little bit about your relationship to Montreal and to stereo specifically. Because yeah, I mean, you growing up here, I mean, the New York guys, some of the New York guys in general, but you and a few others specifically, is a very close connection. It's just another town away. You, know? you must have felt pretty at home because in a lot of ways, the club scene here was built a little bit to model the, the New York scene. Exactly. You know? So I think it always was, it was very, it, it was like a little uh, satellite of, of, of New York in a way. It was Montreal's version of Twilo and the Paradise Garage and the Sound Factory and it had no liquor and it was no stop time. So yeah, that sound system, the venue itself, it's still the best. And like nothing that just does not exist in New York for a very, very long time. You know, slowly all the nightclubs started to close in Manhattan. Twilo, Tunnel, Limelight, Pasha, Crowbar, Spirit. And everything was closed. Now by the city, you know, people were carrying on too much. The last club open of its kind was Vinyl. And we closed Vinyl instead of getting closed. Um, I guess we knew it was just a matter of time because Sadly, it was the era where people were starting to party with GHB and there was overdoses and who was mixing this with that ketamine and there was ambulances and the city was sick of it. The hospitals were sick of it. The mayor was sick of it. And now because all the other clubs closed, we were getting, you know, slammed with crowd and behavior. The owners of the club knew it was time. So they sold the building and it became condominiums. And I got to play the closing uh, party, of course. You know what you got to do to add to your repertoire? Like we know you're closing the clubs. Now you got to play the condominium opening. (laughs) 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 uh, You're not getting the, you gotta, you gotta talk to your agent. That's a great idea. We could do it like a street festival. You'd be like, I just closed the club. And I know, and I know you're opening condos. So you need (laughs) to. Roof party. <laughs> I want to ask you a part, a question about uh, if I give you like three golden VIP tickets to your dream party, you can invite anybody and they're going to come. They can be in the booth or they could just be dancing in the crowd. Who are three people you invite? No, they're all dead. All the people I want to invite. <laughs> yeah. No, you can, no, you can invite, you can, we, it's fantasy world here. Like uh, Prince would be one of them for sure. Goddamn Prince, I swear, he's got, Prince nails that first ticket all the time. Like Prince is just, he's there. Everyone wants Prince there. I would say him more than Michael Jackson because he's just so, he's such a genius. You know, what is compositions, lyricist. And he's going to be fun at a party too. Right. 
And I would love to play for someone like Prince and have him, you know, get into it. And I want to see like Prince looking at me going, that's what I live for. I mean, really, when you boil it all down to that, that's what you really want. You want that one person that you you respect to just give you that look. And they're like, oof. Yeah, and you want to give back to them, too, in a way. You motivated, you inspired me in so many ways, even though I might be playing other people's music, you know, not yours, not mine, but just the way I'm delivering it is partly how you inspire me as an artist. Anyway, Danny, it's a pleasure to hang out and to talk. And uh, I really can't wait till we uh, cross paths again, hopefully in a DJ booth or at a party, and we can just laugh and, and talk about everything. I look forward to it. All right. Thank you so much for having me, Tiga. You're the best. I really appreciate you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Last Party on Earth. As with all episodes, if you want more, there is an extended version as well as bonus material available to members of my Patreon membership service, which is called Club Sexor. So if you want more, uh, usually there's like 20 minutes more, half hour more, sometimes there's an entire part two. If you want more with any of the guests on any of the last Party on Earth episodes, sign up at patreon.com.